On this episode of The Growth Show, we talked to Sue Heilbronner, the founder and CEO of Merge Lane. Uh, we walked out onto the sidewalk in Washington and Pete handed me a check for $10,000 and said, I don't care when I see this back from you, I really believe in you and I want you to find and pursue your vision and your biggest dream. And that was the shift for me. Now, we are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Dave Gearhart, and uh, today I'm joined by Sue Heilbronner. She's the CEO and co-founder of Merge Lane. Sue, thanks for joining us. Hey Dave, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Coming uh, in Boston, it's nice to have you here in person. Um, So give us some background. You have a really interesting personal background from investor to lawyer to CEO to CMO to to everything. Um, But let's start with Merge Lane. Talk about... um, what is Merge Lane for the people that might not know? Sure. My current focus is I run this accelerator called Merge Lane, like a Merge Lane on the highway. And the purpose of Merge Lane is we are a fairly traditional to the extent that a 10-year-old model could be traditional, mentor-driven accelerator. The key differentiator is that we focus on companies that have at least one female in leadership or at least one female co-founder. And there are a few differences about how we operate our accelerator to be attractive to companies that have more diverse founding teams. Uh, We're one year in. We just graduated our first class in April, and we start our next class in February of 2016. One of the things that might be attractive is that you go to your website and and for which is rare in the venture startup world. You see women on the website. That's probably a thing, right? Yeah, that, that is. I think that is a thing. I think that's exactly um, what it is. So, so for people that might not be familiar with um, startups and accelerator programs, like why talk about what an accelerator is and, and why a startup uh, and founders would, would participate in one. Sure. And it's interesting because being here at HubSpot and understanding that you guys also have coined an entire sector uh, that is still relatively new, accelerators are also relatively yeah, new yeah. as a feature. And I was just thinking about how to define them today. For people who don't know, an accelerator in its most traditional sense is an entity that is intended to accelerate the growth trajectory of companies at an early stage. The general way the most popular accelerators do that, and I would say the two most popular accelerators are Techstars and Y Combinator, is that they it's very competitive to get in. Startups apply. The accelerator accepts companies, and companies agree to come join the accelerator. And the accelerator makes an investment in these companies in exchange for some percentage of equity in the participating companies. The program is 12 weeks, generally, of a ton of curriculum, mentor participation, all to really ramp these companies way faster than they would without the accelerator. Yeah. So there's these two great examples of accelerators, right? Techstars, Y Combinator. Um, you know, a lot of people are probably familiar with those. Why? What led you to go out and not only start another accelerator, but take one that was focused on women? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I grapple with every single day almost. Um, 
I went to an event, and ironically, it was about digital marketing, Dave. And I went to this event, and there was a panel of people that were there to talk about digital companies that are startups that could partner with large companies and strategic relationships. And on this panel were six awesome guests, and they were all men. And I thought, you know, this is not a panel about how to use a urinal. It's not even a panel about the designated hitter rule. This is a panel about strategic alliances. And there are zillions of women that could have been on that panel. So I got really, you know, candidly, I got kind of pissed about that and sat with that and just realized I was just sad. And at a point in my life where, honestly, I looked at myself and as resistant as I was to champion a cause related to women, it occurred to me that if I wasn't willing to try to do something to address these gaps in really important stages for startups, then I don't know who else I could expect to do that. Why didn't you want to? Why didn't you want to do it? Like if this was such an important thing, uh, why? And you yeah. said to me, we traded emails a bunch before this. Like you still feel that sometimes. I, I'm feeling it right now because um, <laughs> we're talking. Apparently, about Apparently, people are going to listen to this, Dave, and it's going to really be more public. The fact is, I know what the designated hitter rule is. I am an actually pretty good golfer in as much as I'll be stricken for saying that. And On this episode of The Growth Show, we talked to Sue Heilbronner, the founder and CEO of Merge Lane. Uh, We walked out onto the sidewalk in Washington and Pete handed me a check for $10,000 and said, I don't care when I see this back from you. I really believe in you and I want you to find and pursue your vision and your biggest dream. And that was the shift for me. Now, we are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Dave Gearhart, and uh, today I'm joined by Sue Heilbronner. She's the CEO and co-founder of Merge Lane. Sue, thanks for joining us. Hey, Dave. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Coming uh, in Boston. It's nice to have you here in person. Um, So give us some background. You have a really interesting personal background from investor to lawyer to CEO to CMO to (laughs) to everything. Um, But let's start with MergeLane. Talk about um, what is MergeLane for the people that might not know. Sure. My current focus is I run this accelerator called MergeLane, like a MergeLane on the highway. And the purpose of MergeLane is we are a fairly traditional to the extent that a 10-year-old model could be traditional, mentor-driven accelerator. The key differentiator is that we focus on companies that have at least one female in leadership or at least one female co-founder. And there are a few differences about how we operate our accelerator to be attractive to companies that have more diverse founding teams. Uh, We're one year in. We just graduated our first class in April, and we start our next class in February of 2016. One of the things that might be attractive is that you go to your website, and and for which is rare in the venture startup world, you see women on the website. That's probably a thing, right? Yeah, that that is. I think that is a thing. I think that's exactly Um, what it is. So so for people that might not be familiar with um, startups and accelerator programs, like why talk about what an accelerator is and and why a startup uh, and founders would would 
participate in one. Sure, and it's interesting because being here at HubSpot and understanding that you guys also have coined an entire sector uh, that is still relatively new, accelerators are also relatively yeah. new yeah. as a feature, and I was just thinking about how to define them today. For people who don't know, an accelerator in its most traditional sense is an entity that is intended to accelerate the growth trajectory of companies at an early stage. The general way the most popular accelerators do that, and I would say the two most popular accelerators are Techstars and Y Combinator, is that they it's very competitive to get in, startups apply, the accelerator accepts companies and companies agree to come join the accelerator, and the accelerator makes an investment in these companies in exchange for some percentage of equity in the participating companies. The program is 12 weeks generally of a ton of curriculum, mentor participation, all to really ramp these companies way faster than they would without the accelerator. Yeah. So there's these two great examples of accelerators, right? Techstars, Y Combinator. Um, you know, a lot of people are probably familiar with those. Why, what led you to go out and not only start another accelerator, but take one that was focused on women? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I grapple with every single day almost. Um, I went to an event and ironically, it was about digital marketing, Dave. And I went to this event and there was a panel of people that were there to talk about digital companies that are startups that could partner with large companies and strategic relationships. And on this panel were six awesome guests. And they were all men. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this is not a panel about how to use a urinal. It's not even a panel about the designated hitter rule. This is a panel about strategic alliances. And there are zillions of women that could have been on that panel. So I got really, you know, candidly, I got kind of pissed about that yeah. and sat with that and just realized I was just sad. Right. And at a point in my life where, honestly, I looked at myself and as resistant as I was to champion a cause related to women... It occurred to me that if I wasn't willing to try to do something to address these gaps in really important stages for startups, then I don't know who else I could expect to do that. Why didn't you want to? Why didn't you want to do it? Like if this was such an important thing, uh, why? And you yeah. said to me, we traded emails a bunch before this. Like you still feel that sometimes. I, I'm feeling it right now. Because um, <laughs> well, we're talking apparently about apparently it. Apparently, people are going to listen to this, Dave, and it's going to really be more public. <laughs> the fact is, I know what the designated hitter rule is. I am an actually pretty good golfer in as much as I'll be stricken for saying that. And I have always, for a lot of my career, been the only female in the room. That was true when I was a federal prosecutor. It's been true as an investor. It's been true as a startup executive raising money. And the fact is, I don't really mind it. I, I don't know if I'm just used to it or if, I mean, I like men and I like women. So it never really bothered me until very recently. Um, I don't really want to be labeled for the rest of a really wonderful career as someone who only cared about quote unquote women's issues. Yeah. By the same time, that perception is exactly the reason that no one is really to ha willing to have an honest conversation about this topic. Right. It's, it, it is a hard thing. I had a, my, uh, one of my greatest bosses was a woman and she was powerful and amazing, but she like didn't, you know, for the same reasons, didn't like to go out there and Anytime she was asked to speak on a women in blank panel was like, I, you know, I want to be known as a great leader, not necessarily a, you know, women doing X. Exactly. So now I just get, uh, for example, there's a great article that just came out today. First Round Capital released some results of a study that indicated that companies that have a female founder in their portfolio 
are outperforming companies that don't. Well, I mean, that's fantastic, but let me tell you something. That article came out this morning. It's been four hours. I have had that article <laughs> forwarded to me. I've had phone calls, I mean, like a hundred times. Right. And uh, so, you know, that's just a little bit of an edge. So, um, so is the whole premise behind this is, you know, a lot of people are out there talking about that this is an important issue, but not a lot of people have concrete ways to change the whole women in tech thing. Um, is your whole thing like it starts at the top, you know, when women are, you know, leading companies, those are people who are going to grow companies, hire women, invest in women, and the whole trickle? Yeah, I don't know if we're at the top or the bottom or the middle. I'm actually not sure where we fit into that ecosystem, but the fact is I'm not a sociologist. I'm not the president of the free world. I am someone who's mentored a lot of companies. I've been a mentor, a very content mentor at Techstars for years. I've loved that role. So, and I just love being around entrepreneurs. So for me, this is what made the most sense to do to address this accelerator gap of not having enough women represented in these organizations. And I believe that accelerators are really, really material causal factors in the success of early stage companies. So when people say, you know, how are we, you know, you can wring your hands a long, long time. How am I going to change these ratios? And the fact is, Mergeline just changes the ratio. That's it. I mean, by definition, we have eight and next year we'll have 10 companies with one female in leadership. So maybe it's small, but we're changing the ratio. All right. And that's a pretty, pretty easy line to draw. Like, are we going to invest in this company? Uh, okay, well, do they have a, a female executive, you know, there? It's pretty simple. Yeah. And the, the wonderful thing, to be honest with you, when we started doing this, we really weren't sure how many companies were out there that would adhere or meet our criteria for acceptance into the program. We received hundreds of applications in year one. We have been blessed by a tremendous amount of interest from all different kinds of stakeholders. And I'm really excited when our application opens on September 1st to see the kinds of companies that come in for year two. So you mentioned Techstars. I wrote down a quote from, uh, speaking of Techstars, Brad Feld, about the whole startup ethos in Boulder. Hmm. Um, and he said that you really fit that, which is this whole give before you get mantra. Um, why is that so important? That's funny. You know, today, I'm just tell you a little bit of an anecdote. Today, a, a colleague, an associate, someone I like, emailed me, and she's coming to Boulder, and she wants to sell, pitch her product of her SaaS company in Boulder. And she asked me for some introductions. And it was interesting. I really like this person. I really like the company. But the fact is, I don't make that many cold introductions for sales mostly because in order to build cre real credibility in my community, you have to be there willing to give. Right. And what I always say to people is if you wanna build a pipeline, if you wanna build mentors in your network, if you wanna build a network in general, just be awesome. And in my town, in Boulder, and really in the whole Colorado entrepreneur ecosystem, that just means giving a lot of your time. And I do that in a whole bunch of different ways. So uh, switching gears, probably a good, you know, um, talking about some of the ways that, that you are involved. Um, I want to talk about how you switch gears in your career, actually. So you went from being a federal prosecutor in the Civil Rights Division, which seems like a pretty good job, um, reinvented yourself in the middle of your career. So our audience is typically execs, VPs, people in the middle of their careers. Um, why did you make that decision and... and uh, 
you know, <laughs> obviously this will come with some advice for people who I'm sure you, you know, you, you wrestled with this a lot, I'm sure, before making that decision. Right. It may be bad advice, but if it comes with whatever it comes with, that's we'll just be at our peril <laughs> on that. But um, so I was 33 and I had I looking back, I decided I wanted to be a federal prosecutor in the Justice Department at age 11. So some people want to be an astronaut. I wanted to be a lawyer. That's you, just how it was. I, I don't even know. I, at 11, I, I have no idea what I was doing. Like, what, what possibly happened at 11 where you made that decision? You were probably playing t-ball like a sane 11-year-old. Yeah, yeah. I was on the debate team. <laughs> so uh, I was really raised, not by wolves, but by a lot of lawyers. And it felt almost like a fait accompli. I was a really, really verbal kid. And there was just some weird sense of justice in me as a child, which made me intolerable to my parents and my teachers. Um, but I just decided early on to do that. When I was practicing law, I, I, I wanted this job and you, I didn't get it right out of law school. It's kind of, believe it or not, it's really hard. The cheapest, the lowest paying legal jobs are actually the hardest to get in Washington. Um, and I was a liberal kid, so the civil rights division, I mean, that was just the be all end all. So right. there I was at 33, I had the be all end all job. I was prosecuting skinheads, police officers who went too far, and people who shot at abortion providers, which just happened to be causes I cared a lot about. And I looked around and for whatever reason, even though I was trying cases all over the United States, it did not feel creative enough to me. So it was 1999, Dave, you were you were probably 11 at that time. In any event, we won't talk about that. That's a pretty good guess, yeah. Is that right? I was 12, I was 12, wow. yeah. Nobody can see you, but it's almost <laughs> obvious. So. Uh, the internet was really just happening as a consumer thing, and I, for some reason, just decided, well, for a few reasons, that I was going to give it a shot to start an e-commerce business. This is one piece of advice, not only for people thinking about making changes, but for, for people surrounded by people who are thinking about making changes. I went out to dinner with some friends, and one of those friends was Pete Levitus, and he was probably my most financially conservative buddy. We were all 33, same age, all lawyers. And... I told this group of friends, you know, you guys, I know I have this plum job as a lawyer, but I feel like there's something missing. It's not creative enough. And I'm going to start an internet company and I'm going to sell baby clothes on the web for millennium babies. That's what everybody was doing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and I knew, I mean, next time I had an AOL email account, you know, you've got mail, the whole thing. So uh, we walked out onto the sidewalk in Washington and Pete handed me a check for $10,000 and said, I don't care when I see this back from you. I really believe in you and I want you to find and pursue your vision and your biggest dream. And that was the shift for me. Now, that probably was the most pivotal factor that happened, but the advice is this. Well, first, I'm 49 years old and I still feel like I have a lot of games ahead of me. And second, that there's, when there are people around you and you can give them their first yes, or you can give them the ability to do something that is unexpected and be supportive of that. That's an amazingly important role for a mentor. I, I was, uh, I met with someone yesterday and she said, uh, she's a CEO and she said, I would be a terrible VC. And I said, why? And she said, well, because I want to help out every single entrepreneur. You know, if it's a hard problem, the VC reaction is like, well, I don't know if this is the right market. We don't have the right expertise, but she's like, here's a check. Go work, go That's take great. your idea. Yeah, that would make her, I, I, uh, I, I'm going to admit one more thing to you, Dave, which is I grew up as a child in Miami 
And in Miami, we had a lot of gambling. We had dog races, really. It's embarrassing, but I am old. Horse races, highlight, we had a lot of stuff. My parents took us to all of these things. And I remember when we would go to these horse races at the Hollywood Dog Track, that I would always bet on the horse that had the coolest looking jockey <laughs> and the best little colored jacket over his saddle. And um, I, that's a ridiculous way to think about startups. But one thing, the point that I mean to make by that analogy is, for me, it's always about the who and much less about the what. And that really is a philosophy that I carry through almost every aspect of my Yeah, life. so uh, it's a theme that we've heard a lot, you know, on this podcast, which is, you know, people are the most, you know, the most important thing in any business. It's something that, you know, we live here at HubSpot. Um, Want to talk, you know, use people to kind of talk about leadership a little bit and, what makes a, a great leader? It's it's one of these things that always comes up when we talk to companies. It's like, okay, what made you guys so successful? And, you know, every founder is like, we had a great team and, you know, we had great people. But it's really hard to boil down um, what actually makes a great leader. Yeah, great, great question. I think the first thing is something that you guys at HubSpot really, really live. And I see it in a lot of your communications to the public because I'm not inside the walls of this company. And the first is openness and transparency. Um, I really believe strongly that to have true authentic leadership rather than they, what they call this in the law de jure leadership, which is you're the CEO, so you get to be the leader. You know, I just personally don't believe in that. I believe you earn responsibility and you earn leadership regardless of your title. So one thing that matters to me is to be the kind of person who will speak with candor and to be the kind of person to whom others can speak candidly. Uh, it's a core principle for me. That drives off of off of that is a corollary, which is being really intolerant of gossip in the environment that I'm leading. Yeah. Uh, and you know that's not always easy, right? That means that if people are talking about other people without some larger goal, like doing a performance evaluation or solving a real concern that people need to know about in your organization that could create legal liability or just bad stuff that there are no conversations about a third person unless that third person is in the room. And the third, I think, and most important is just curiosity. Um, this isn't always easy for me. I'm super opinionated. It probably even comes through in how I talk. Um, but to really know that even as an extrovert person who has big opinions and a ton of conviction, that when I'm around people that are different than me in my organization, that I am able to take a pause and to hear a countervailing viewpoint and really listen and take that in and be willing to change my mind. Yeah. I want to hit on the transparency thing a little bit because um, I feel like that's be the best companies today uh, focus on transparency. Like that's such an important thing. Um, but if you're if you're an older business, like how what would your advice be to somebody like, man, I want to I want to get involved. I want my company to be more transparent. Great. Like how do you make that shift? Yeah, my view on that shift is, you know, it's really, we have all had that wonderful experience of sitting around having core values drummed into our head off a plaque over the elevator. So that's not my way of doing this. The way that I choose to do this is that I and my leadership team have to live by these values. So if I am a CEO and I'm really wanting to be, to expose myself to this idea of more transparency, one of the things that I can do when I kick off a meeting, every time I kick off a meeting, 
is to start it out by saying something that is true about me in that moment. This is a tiny little tip, but sometimes you'll walk into a meeting and you're scared because you have some quarterly results mm -hmm. and you're concerned about them, mm -hmm. or you're scared because you just had to let go of somebody on your executive team who was incredibly well-liked. Well, instead of trying to polish that over and make it look clean and shiny, to actually reveal yourself, to increase your vulnerability and to achieve intimacy with your team and your entire company, just reveal something about you. So, so like the, the traditional model would be like, I'm the CEO, I need to come up here and project confidence, which is important too. But you're saying like, it's okay if you get up there and you say, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty nervous right now. Well, I mean, what's more confident than that? <laughs> right, right, that's right. You're the most on, like honesty, just being open is yeah. being confident. Yeah. And I think just setting that example and allowing for that in your executive team meetings and encouraging your managers to allow for that in their meetings, that does float through an organization. And you just take the stand that you're not going to accept anything other than that. Yeah, and I, one of the things that we talk about a lot um, as a team, I think, is uh, transparency also forces you to have good judgment in your decisions. Mm -hmm. Like if everything is transparent, it's harder to make bad decisions because everybody knows yeah. what's what's at stake. Yeah, I mean, there's a really funny corollary for me on this. I'm really pretty obsessed with Susan Cain's book, Quiet. I think it was just in the Times last week that there was a story about it. Um, this is just another example of that. Like just knowing that everybody in the room has a different personality type and they have a different style. One of the core themes of quiet is if you have a really extrovert leader who is incredibly persuasive, that leader may completely run over the introverts in the room or the people who are a little less persuasive when they talk. Right. So just allowing yourself to take a pause, stay curious, hear out these people with these different styles and allow them to be authentic. Exactly. It's way better. to. See. Yeah. I think one of the best exercises I've had to do is uh, everyone on the team takes the disc personality test, yep. which is one of those things that like at first you might roll your eyes and be like, oh, this is one of those like, you know, corny team building things. But it was really eye opening to say like, okay, this person sit next to me. This is the best way to communicate to them about X, right? Right. right. Um, and, and by the way, I mean, just make another, everyone rolls their eyes on these personality tests in my, in my opinion because the CEO usually holds herself above them. So if you know the CEO's <laughs> right. type, right? right? And you right. know how the CEO and the CFO run into each other when this one issue comes up yeah. because of their respective types, if they're playing too, it makes it much Well, yeah, easier. you want to talk about transparency. It's like, I know you. this is your personality. Here's your DNA. Like, yeah. Right. Um, this is probably a good place to talk about uh, conscious leadership. Um, there's basically, this is something that you talk about, there's basically 15 commitments that, that get taught there. And we can put a, I can put a link to this stuff in the show notes. Um, talks about things like responsibility, candor, no gossip, which is something you meant. Let's maybe dive in and just talk about some of those 15 things and, and how they relate to, to leadership. Sure. To, I appreciate that. So yes, I've been part of this conscious leadership group. The, the, you can find this group at conscious.is. And uh, it's three people who created a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. I am not one of them, but I have been involved in this work for the, you know, the last five years with these guys. Um, and this idea is that there are 15 commitments and 15 counter commitments. And here's the thing. You know, you'll, you'll post a link and, and it'll, the, one of the commitments is that I agree to see other people as my allies. Wow. Okay. I mean, that's a really heady idea. 
I agree to eliminate gossip in my organization. I mean, that's a heady idea. I agree to be curious as opposed to stuck and connected to rightness. Again, really heady idea. There is no way to force these. And one reason is lots of people are committed to not doing these things. And it's really hard without a good process and without a transparent atmosphere and some tools to talk those people out of it by saying that you have to do it this way to work here. Some people are going to be willing and some aren't. But I think this work is really effective to achieve some common language around what our expectations are to work together. Now, I, I do a lot of work with a lot of companies and not all of them are small. Some of them are larger and PE backed and, you know, bigger companies, 50, $100 million in revenue. And one of the pieces of feedback I get around this kind of thing, like let's just take curiosity, is the CEO will say, Sue, sure. I mean, curiosity is great, but we don't have time for curiosity. And to your point, Dave, they make the assumption that if we have non-curious decision-making, it's faster and therefore it's better. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so all of these commitments have to, you know, it's, it's got to be realistic about how we're running a business. You still have decision rights in a business. You don't stay infinitely curious. You still terminate people. So everyone isn't your ally necessarily for the duration of your company as a member of your team. But I'm a big believer in trying to bring these into the workplace. Uh, what's what's the best way to, to do that? If somebody's listening and they're like, this sounds interesting, we need to do some of these things, it, it's probably hard to just say, boom, here's our new mantra as a company. Like, How do you start working these things in? Sure. Uh, there are some videos and some exercises at conscious.is. They take it one commitment at a time and have exercises on how to bring those into your company. If you're interested in learning more about that, there are coaches that do this 15 commitments work that go into companies all over the world, including Fortune 500 companies. So you can use the contact form at conscious.is if you'd like to learn about bringing a facilitator into your organization to get you closer to some of these commitments. One really important thing, and it goes back to something I talked about before, is we don't do any work with companies where the CEO is not willing to be in the sessions because none of this stuff works unless it comes directly yeah. and personally from the leader. All right, so you mentioned working with a lot of companies um, since this is the growth show. Um, what's, what's one or two things that you think that most companies, any stage, get wrong with growth or like if there's a misconception? And it's okay to put you on the spot yeah, with this one. sure, sure. Okay, here's the first thing. Am I allowed to talk about a specific company? Of course. Great. Okay, so this will be fun for anyone who's listening. Go to shinesty.com. It's S-H-I-N-E-S-T-Y.com. Full and fair disclosure, I've been advising them since way before they had a website, and I have a teeny tiny investment in this company, just so you know. So Shinesty is a company that develops awesome and outrageous clothing for college theme parties. So if you're starting to see American flag suits or ugly Christmas sweater extravaganzas even more with new clothes <laughs> or St. Patrick's Day leprechaun suits or, you know, 4th of July Ameri patriotic short sleeve suits. They're all coming from Shinesty. When I met these guys and heard them talk about this business, number one, they're hilarious. Number two, they were right out of school. They know this market inside out. Number three, better than any people I have ever met, every word that comes out of their mouth, every motif of this company 
is completely consistent with their brand and with their line of apparel. When you have that kind of alignment, just get, get an email from Shinesty. Sign up for the email list. Yeah. Just because you want to see a great example of alignment and branding, when you have that kind of alignment, things are easy. When you have that kind of alignment, what happens to them happens to you, which is you go out and you do a very little bit of advertising. You have a great campaign that's run on HubSpot, most likely, and you sell out of inventory within a couple hours. Yeah. Generally, growth is easy. If you're pushing too hard and it always feels like a battle that's going uphill, something is wrong and you should look at what it is you're selling. I think that's a big well, misapprehension. The, the thing that first stood out, though, when you said it, it was the first time I've heard of them, but it's it's like, you know, it doesn't seem like a group of people that got into business for the sake of starting a business, mm-hmm. right? It's like, we know, like, if you're authentic and you know this particular topic better than anyone else, you just need to be yourself and speak what you know. Like, it's not some, you know, it's not some person in an ivory tower being like, how can we reach college right, kids right. and sell them, you know, the gear, yes, right? Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and so I think, I think that's why, I mean, just a little bit more on them because it's so interesting yeah, yeah. and I happen to know yeah. is when you get hired to fill orders at Shinesty in an air conditionless warehouse that only has a porta potty okay when you take that job which you're really excited about the first thing that you do is you start being a model at shinesty and you go to a random place with pbr and sweatbands on your hands and a giant cell phone from 1984 and you shoot you're a model for these clothes on their site all of it the whole culture it's only 20 yeah. people now but it all runs through all these people. but but if you talk about culture like to get everybody bought in that seems like the best way right because you know that that's coming up in an interview process like this is what you're going to be doing it's a great way to weed out people who aren't in it for the right reasons yeah yeah i think that's exactly right and and then this is really obvious and anyone listening to this who is in leadership already knows this but I I still hear countless examples of people who are getting every aspect of a product right before they are getting data and feedback. I mean, when did Eric Ries write the Lean Startup? I mean, a a long time ago, whatever. It's probably 12 years, but it could be centuries. It might as well be centuries in terms of what our ecosystem has been doing. It's just critically important to run experiments. You don't know anything, and Shaughnessy is a great example of that too. Not unlike the Zappos story, the first thing they did is they went to the Salvation Army because shopping at the Salvation Army is a pain in the butt, but it's where theme clothing usually appears. They bought some theme clothing and they started marketing on their website before they created a single piece of apparel. They knew that they were doing something right, and I just see mistakes on that front all the time. Which, especially today in 2015, like, you mentioned the Lean Startup book, which was, you know, 10 plus years ago. It's so, it should be so easy to test ideas today. And that can be as easy as like putting a button on your website that doesn't actually do anything, but says like, oops, we haven't built this yet. But then you can easily see like, okay, well, X amount of people click this. So this is clearly something people are interested yes. in. And this is something, by the way, you know, you, I, everybody has different opinion on millennials. Millennials, by the way, my personal opinion is they're just my favorite generation ever. And this is something, you just don't have to tell a millennial this. They get this. They bleed this. It, you tell them to put up three landing pages and compare the outcomes and signups for a beta that doesn't exist yet. And they finish that assignment in an hour <laughs> right. because they can design, they can code, and they're using tools that are inbound marketing related to help them look at the data and evaluate it. So they get it. Uh, what else? What else should we talk about? should we talk about? Hmm. Why are you here in Boston? I'm here because we want to get the word out about Merge Lane. And uh, we really, really want to find women-led companies who 
we think are just outside of the communication trail for what startups could do if they want to make it easier. You know what would be fun to talk about, Dave? What? Let's talk about a couple, just a couple examples of things that I think I've learned are issues that women leaders face more than men leaders. How about that? Love it. That'd be fun. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the first thing is, and it kind of ties back to that lean startup point, um, I found, and by the way, let's just acknowledge that I'm going to get you in trouble by talking about this because it's a toxic conversation and everybody's afraid to have it, but part of my role in the world right now is to be willing to have it. So as a rank generalization, women are less inclined to bring a product or a company or an idea out into the open before it is ready. And ready means perfect. And ready means totally ready to roll, people ready to take customers. And that's just been a really interesting discovery. We read the data about how when women look at a job description and see 10 characteristics, if they, if they meet nine out of 10, they don't apply and men have a different belief on that. This is just another feature of that. That's the first thing. The, the second thing is that I think women on the whole, based on the experience that I've had in some years, are less inclined to ask for help. They are more inclined to believe that it's their job to do everything end to end. And in terms of fast growth companies, I think that's a massive liability. So are you are you trying to how how do you fix those things? It just like how do you educate it's like fun. hey, here's yeah. these two things you don't need to do. It doesn't have to be perfect. Right. And one that's a great language here is so interesting, right? Like fix. One of the core beliefs of merge lane and really it's just one of my core beliefs is there's no shame and there's no blame here. Like there's nothing for anyone to feel badly about. It's just stuff to be aware of. And it's particularly useful for male CEOs or male leaders of any kind who want to get the most out of the females on their teams, right? It's just be aware of some of these dynamics for you to make a little bit of a correction. So one thing that we do in, as part of our program is we use coaches. We have personal coaches for all of our CEOs because we believe that intrinsic issues inside leaders are not only personal, but they extend out to their companies, they extend out to their entire potential growth. The first step is just seeing it. And the first step is seeing it and saying, hey, this, this seems like you're really holding back for a long time. You've spent a ton of money, you've spent a ton of time doing this thing to get it ready. Maybe you should go out and test it with people who might want to fund your company. And they'll say, no, no, it's not quite ready. Or six months from now, we'll try it. And just start with awareness. Like, here's the book, The Lean Startup. Experiments can be really valuable to you. I think women are more inclined to do it the way you're doing it right now. Yeah. And I just want to let you know there's a different way. Who, uh, this is kind of random, but like who makes a, what makes a good coach? Like the people that can, that can get, so say you have a, a female founder who, you know, is doing the two things that you mentioned. Like, what what type of person slash coach like gets them to to change that? Like, because that's not an easy conversation to have, and it's a hard behavior. Like, if you're a perfectionist, it's not easy to just be like, <laughs> boom, here's my terrible you know test of something. Like, yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for that. I think that a really good coach meets the person that they're working with right where that person is. This is not about proselytizing, right? It's not about showing this person a different path. If they, they probably know the path is out there. They've seen Jeff Bezos. It's not like there are no examples of people out there who have done things maybe differently. Um, so the first step is just getting the person to understand that this is what they're doing. This is a behavior. A inviting them to find out whether that behavior is familiar. Inviting them to find out, hey, 
When did that perfectionist behavior, when did that start in your life? Do you remember what the source is? Who modeled that for you? And then get them to wonder about whether they're just willing to accept that they're an incredible perfectionist and it makes things take twice as long for them. Because until they're ready to accept and appreciate how valuable that trait has been for them in their career, which is true for almost every pattern we all are running, mm-hmm. there's no way for them to change it. They are the ones who have to be willing. But the first is just seeing these things as patterns that may be holding them back. Yeah. Cool. Well, Sue, thank you so much for doing this. Thank um, you. This we're is fun. lucky to have you on the show. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. If you've been enjoying the show, We'd be pumped if you left us a quick review on iTunes. And if you head over to our website, that's thegrowthshow.com, you can get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Get on our email list, which gives you a bunch of stuff like exclusive updates about the show and the opportunity to ask us questions about upcoming guests, maybe get your question on the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Good job. That was fun. That was okay? Yeah, it was great. You're good at this. That was great. Yeah.